One Week Season. going on inner circle fam welcome to the week eight edition of the tuesday strategy reflection inner circle segment with myself jm to win those of you who listen live you kind of get the uh inside glimpse we always kind of have some talk and some back and forth before we get started and then we're quiet for a moment before the intro so um kind of a behind the curtains moment for you guys as always thanks for hanging out live i know i always recommend putting me on 2.5 or 1.5 x speed i know that noel's fan always recommends not putting me on 1.5 x speed because he says that you miss valuable stuff your call there i listen to myself on 1.5 x speed but i'm also the one who was talking i am excited about tonight's segment i probably say that pretty often but uh one of the things that been thinking about lately is in DFS, always talking about doing things different from the field. We're always talking about how can we be intelligently different from the field? How can we outmaneuver the field? And we talk about things in terms of being contrarian. We talk about things in terms of ownership percentages and so on and so forth. But one of my favorite quotes that relates to, I wasn't about DFS, but relates directly to DFS was from a Peter Thiel book. And he said, uh, paraphrasing, this might actually be the exact quote, but I'll say paraphrasing in case it's not. Uh, the best way to be contrarian is not to, well, basically, I think what it basically boils down to the best way to be contrarian is to think for yourself. So it's not to try to identify what everybody else is doing and then do something differently, but it's to think for yourself. Larejo touched on something similar last week. I think it was being authentically different or something like that. It was from a book that he really likes. Uh, he talked about it, I believe, in last week's scroll. But the idea is that each of us has, I, I say all the time, like each of our brains works differently. And so I talk about that in terms of how you should approach DFS. But also one of the things that I, I kind of allude to from time to time, and we don't really talk about in depth often enough, is this idea that we should be figuring out how we see things on the slate, figuring out how we can be different based on our own thoughts and just being authentic and unique. So one of the things that we see, a good example is you can take music or movies or books, uh, artists who are not trying to copycat somebody else and not trying to think about what works best or what has worked best in the past, but instead just trying to create a true representation of themselves. So if you see my wife sent me a trailer for a new Wes Anderson movie the other night, I didn't play the trailer and just looking at the screen grab, which was just the title, my thought was, I bet this is a Wes Anderson trailer. If you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, not because he's trying to do something specific, but because he's just creating a true representation of himself on the screen. And there's an element of that in DFS to where one of the things that Cubs fan said to me last year, and it was in regards to something that somebody else was saying about DFS. And um, they were talking about the, the way to play DFS. And Cubs fan said to me, that's a way to play DFS, but that's not the only way to play DFS. And what he meant is I play differently than that. And I've been enormously profitable throughout my DFS career. And 
here's how I play. And it's like based on what I think and the way I see things. So there's an element of taking all of the things that we talk about and then understanding how to apply that to your own self. And so there are layers here, right? One of the things that Zandamir said a few weeks ago is any book that helps you learn critical thinking is going to help you in DFS. Also, any time spent, this is my addition, but any time spent getting to know yourself is going to help you in DFS and having that confidence to be fearless in the decisions that you make and having that confidence to put together a roster that is unique because you saw things a certain way and you're not concerned about what people will think about that roster if it fails and they see that roster. The moves that might seem nonsensical to the people who are kind of in the main flow of what everybody's saying, what everybody's saying about a week. And it goes back, uh, and we're, we're going to dive into something here in just a minute, but it's going to make all of this really actionable. But when I was talking to Scott Barrett today on our on our DFS recap pod, one of the things I said to him was the DFS players, the mainstream in particular, think way too much about fading players. They think way too much about, okay, this is I'm going to fade this guy and hope he has a bad game. And I'm going to fade this guy and hope he has a bad game. Whereas really, or even I'm going to fade this guy because of these strategy reasons. Um, can you fade this guy? I saw that headline last week. Can you fade Derrick Henry this week? If we're thinking like that, then we're always thinking about the scores that we might be missing out on. Instead, we should be thinking about the fact that let's take away defense. There's only eight, eight spots on a roster. So by virtue of that fact, you are always going to be, quote, fading a ton of guys. And the more that we can break out of that type of thinking and say, instead, I am playing a group of players I think can get me to 200 plus points. That should be step one. Step two, I've brought this up several times, but that big win that Mike Johnson had in week two or three, where, it, yeah, I think week two or three, and he said, talked about his he broke down his roster after the fact, and he basically talked about how he came to that roster from a building standpoint, and then talked about how he compared that roster to ownership projections and to what the field was likely to be doing that week to see if he needed to make any changes from there from a strategy perspective. Again, there are all different ways to come at DFS, different angles that you can approach it from. So for somebody like Hilo, what's going to make the most sense to him is often going to be, what is everybody else thinking? And how can I play directly off of that? I've talked about this in the past, that when I first read one of Bale's fantasy sports for smart people books, it threw me off so much. I had like a month and a half stretch of MLB DFS play that was just awful because I was breaking out of what I was strong at, which is just seeing things from my own perspective, building in a bubble and understanding what the sharp things are in that slate and being uniquely different just by being authentically myself. Uh, and I started instead thinking too much about what everybody else was doing and trying to filter all those thoughts in. And, and I, as I'm saying this, I can sense some of you nodding and being like, yeah, I run into that as well. Like if I think too much about what everybody else is doing, it hampers me from seeing what's the clearest path forward. And so for me, for Mike, for po possibly for you, the strongest approach, the clearest approach is to first identify how you see the slate. And to identify how you see the slate, not through Vegas lines and not through all of these numbers, but through a more three-dimensional aspect of what these coaches are going to try to do and what that means for the game on the field. 
One of the things that I have realized is that in 2014, 2015, uh, 2015 was the first year that I wrote the NFL Edge, but I've mentioned this before. I was light enough on research at the time. It was much more focused on what each coaching staff is going to try to do and what that means for the game. And there was a period where I was on a 20-hour flight from Asia back to the States in like week four or five and wrote up the entire NFL edge with the Wi-Fi was down in the plane. And I wrote up the entire NFL edge with no Wi-Fi. Now that would be impossible these days because we've added so many stats and uh, all this research and whatnot. But when I was focusing more from that standpoint, I was much more frequently on plays that no one was really on. And it was much easier for me to be authentically contrarian just by building what I wanted to build. As I sort of became more integrated into the DFS industry and needed to kind of have all the numbers down and be able to talk about all those things, that sort of went away a little bit. And then as I launched OWS and I was the only voice on the site, and so it was very important for me to make sure I was giving you guys hey, here's the sharpest information. Here are the sharpest plays by the numbers. Uh, It pulled me away from that a little bit. And that's one of the things that I've enjoyed this year is being able to get back to that a little bit. Being more of a bubble player in terms of how I'm approaching the slate, how I am imaginatively seeing the slate and being more willing to be wrong, but also being willing to be in spots where everybody else isn't thinking about those spots. So what we want to do today is it's one thing to talk about this stuff. It's another thing to talk about this stuff a lot, which we do, because then you start to get it more and more and more. But it's also another thing to go through examples, because examples can kind of help you to see things as they unfold and see things in real time and see things through your own eyes. So what we are going to do today, and we might make this a two-week thing, as in we might do this same thing again next week for next week's slate. We'll see. What we are going to do today is take this week's slate, the week eight slate. And if you guys are in a position, whether you're listening to this live and you're on your computer and you have your phone with you where you can pull up the DraftKings app, or if you're listening to this recorded, you're not driving. And so you can pull up, you're listening to it on your phone, you can pull up DraftKings on your computer or on your phone or whatever. I want to encourage you to open up the DraftKings app. And for those of you who are listening live, I will give you a moment as I'm saying this, but go to DraftKings, the app, the website, whatever, and create a new lineup and create a lineup for this week's slate, this week's main slate. What I want to do is show you, so my process kind of evolves and moves around based on what my responsibilities are with the site and where I'm sort of at in my DFS process. But this is very much what my 2014, 15, 16 process was like and what I'm moving back toward more and more. Now, as we open the app, we are going to see pricing. For me... I am okay with seeing pricing and not letting it affect my decisions early in the week. If that is an issue for you, then you might want to be cautious with something like this. But one of the things that we want to be doing is getting a sense of how the slate fits together from as early of a point in the week as we can so that we can start understanding what might be our optimal path for that week. Another thing we want to do is something we talked about last week, which is keeping track of our thoughts throughout the week. So I have a bunch of notes from last night from me getting a sense of this week's slate. Those are now my foundational thoughts. 
They might change a little bit. They might change a lot based on what I think through later in the week, what I come across later in the week. And by what I come across, you'll actually see one of these examples as we go through this whole process right now. But one of the things that we want to be doing is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is giving ourselves fewer things to focus on at once. So a lot of times we have this tendency to think about our entire roster at once. And so we only get down to like layer one or layer two of how we should see these different positions. So I am going to guide you through exactly what I did last night so that you can get a sense of what this can look like to basically build in a bubble to have a sense of the slate in a bubble. And what we want to be able to do is not marry any of these thoughts. There's this fear of, oh gosh, I came on this guy on Tuesday and then I moved off of him on Thursday and he had a huge game. Or I came across this guy on Tuesday and I don't want to move off of him in case he has a huge game because then I'll be kicking myself. What we need to understand is as the week moves on, as we keep thinking about these things, we can get a better and better sense of what our highest certainty places are. And if a lower certainty place hits and we're not on it, even though we thought about it, that's okay. That's going to happen a lot over time. Optimally, you've thought about every player on the slate who could post a big game. So optimally, every week, there are players who post a big game that you didn't roster that week. The I remember there was a week last year where Joe Mixon had a huge week and nobody was on him. And he was like, I, like completely off my radar. I had never even thought about him. And I talked about that the next week and said, you know, this was a flaw in my process last week, because really every player who has a huge game, we should have thought of them at some point because there's only a handful of players can go for those 30 to 40 plus point scores. So we need to be thinking about those guys every week, accounting for those guys every week. And if they don't end up on our roster, that's okay, especially because through a thought process like this, we're probably ending up on plus EV plays week after week after week, which means we're going to make money over time. So first thing I do, first thing I'm going to do is I open up quarterback. But on the app, and you can do this on the uh, desktop as well, except you have to click on the app. You can click, first game is Miami Buffalo. And you just click on it and it will filter to only the quarterbacks in that game. On the computer, you have to click the Miami and Buffalo names. And then when you move on to the next one, which is Rams at Houston, you'll click off of both of those names, Miami and Buffalo. You'll click uh, the Rams in Houston. But basically, this forces you to only look at one game at a time. We don't want to take the slate too big. I am going to go through quarterback twice with you guys. These are not definitive thoughts. You'll see that as we get to the interpretations, the player grade, whatever, some of these thoughts will be the same. Some of these thoughts will change. But the key here is getting our feet under us. The key here is understanding what the slate offers us, understanding what our options are, and being able to then start turning the wheels in our head throughout the week. Maybe you're driving, you're thinking through the slate. Maybe you're taking a shower, you're thinking through the slate. Maybe you're laying in bed unable to fall asleep, you're thinking through the slate. And these pieces start to come together throughout the week. You start to identify different things and, and piece things together. Miami at Buffalo. My first thought here is, this is not a difficult matchup for Josh Allen and the Bills. If we open up Josh Allen's game logs, we see that he disappointed against Miami in week two. 
We can also recall back to that, that we were a little bit concerned about that spot at the time because of the heat in Miami and the fact that the Dolphins put the visiting team on that sideline where the sun's beating down on them the entire game. And it's really tough to play in Miami, especially in September and the first half of October. This game is going to be in Buffalo. It's a good spot for Josh Allen and the Bills. And that's as far as I'm going at this point. We know that it's a tough matchup for Tua. We know that the Dolphins are going to pass a lot. Let's log that information. Move on to the next game. Rams at Houston. First thought here is, okay, last week, Matthew, uh, I had some concerns that the Rams were going to run the ball a lot more. Stafford was going to pass less. Next thing you know, the Lions, who as Hilo broke down multiple times, have been very competitive, very aggressive. The Lions jumped out to a lead. The Lions kept the game competitive the whole time. Stafford and Cup had another big game. Do we expect that against the Texans? Well, it's significantly less likely with Davis Mills at quarterback and this kind of lower, not low effort, but lower effort Texans team compared to what the Lions have brought to the table this year. So at this point, I am going to say, okay, that's my thoughts on this spot right now. Subject to change again, but we're going to move on to the next game. San Francisco at Chicago. Now, what I'm trying to do, you might've noticed, is just get some high level thoughts pinned down on each game. Go game by game and get a sense of the slate. My first thought on this game was, This is going to take me a little bit more time to think through. How are the 49ers going to try to beat Bears? We know that they like to build things off the run. We know that they don't trust Garoppolo that much. We know that they're pretty one-dimensional right now since they're not using Ayuk, since Kittle is out. Let's put a bookmark on this and move on to the next game. That's all I did here. Through those initial thoughts, moved on to the next game. Cincinnati at the Jets. We know that the Bengals... Started out the season sort of run-based. We know that last year they were extremely pass-heavy. Everything was built off the pass. We know that there's a chance that they're going to start opening things up more and more as the season moves along, as Burrow keeps proving he's healthy and comfortable. We know that the Jets are not a concerning matchup. There are a lot of different ways that things could go here. Mike White's going to be starting at quarterback for the Jets. Not a great setup for the Jets keeping pace in this game. So we have... Joe Burrow as a possibility. We also have Joe Mixon as a possibility, recognizing that the Bengals could end up just running the ball all game. Also, the Bengals have been very fine. The Bengals are playing for a playoff spot right now. They've been very fine lightening Mixon's workload this season. So there's a chance that the Bengals smash in this spot and don't produce any had-to-have-it scores. Those are my initial thoughts on this game. Move on to the next one. Tennessee at Indianapolis. In this spot, we have a couple interesting quarterbacks. We have a quarterback in Carson Wentz who is probably not going to draw the eye much, right? He threw 26 passes in the heavy rain against San Francisco. He threw 20 passes in a blowout win against Houston. But before that, 35 passes, 32 passes, 37, 31, 38. Playing Tennessee, it's pretty likely that Wentz ends up with about 35 passes in this game. Again, both teams can win on the ground. Both teams can win through the air. Those are my thoughts on this spot. Pittsburgh at Cleveland. These are two non-aggressive passing attacks. Roethlisberger's throwing 40 passes a game, barely getting up over 200, 250 yards. The Browns are going to want to run the ball. They're going to want to slow things down. It's likely to be Case Keenum under center again. These, This spot doesn't seem to stack up with some of the other spots we've looked at. Those are my thoughts. Initial overview thoughts on this game. Philadelphia at Detroit. This is an interesting one. We just talked about how high effort the Lions have been. 
What a good job. And real quickly, I'm going to go through all of this. I'm going to go through the quarterbacks twice. I'm going to go through the running backs. I'm going to go through the wide receivers twice. And what you're going to see is we're going to have an initial list built, and then I'm going to build an initial roster. And so what this is going to help you see is how all these pieces come together for me, how I get a sense of the slate at the front of the week, and how I can use that moving forward. This will actually probably take us uh, to the eight o'clock on the East Coast mark, and then we'll have about 30 minutes for questions. But I think this is extremely valuable stuff because what we really want each of you to be able to do is think through the slate yourself and come up with some authentic thoughts that you feel confident and comfortable in and can start building around unique angles that you see. So you have authentically different rosters from what the field has. Philadelphia, Detroit. We talked about how high effort Detroit has been. We know that Jalen Hurts has been the king of garbage time. I saw today, I think it's 43% of his fantasy points this season have come in the fourth quarter this year. So we shouldn't expect Philadelphia to run away with this game. We should expect this game to be relatively competitive. Those are my high-level thoughts on this game. I don't need to make any decisions yet. Move on to the next game. Carolina at Atlanta. This is an interesting one, right? Because Sam Darnold, I was saying this after the first few weeks. Everybody's high on Sam Darnold. Everybody's high on this Panthers offense. And I was saying, watch these games. He's still Sam Darnold. He's still making some bad mistakes. He's still making poor decisions. He's still getting flustered in the pocket. All of a sudden he plays Philadelphia scores 9.1 Minnesota, 17.1, the giants 3.4. How on earth, but we have a soft matchup against Atlanta and now everybody's turned away from this offense. Okay. That's interesting. We know that the Panthers defense is good. We know that they're harder to run against than pass against. We know that the Falcons are going to pass a lot. We know that these teams are familiar with each other. So Matt Ryan, he's kind of in this range where it's like, Hey, he could throw for 250 yards and one or two touchdowns, but he also could throw for 325, 350 and two or three touchdowns. So there's an interesting range in this game. Next game. New England at the Chargers. Now, my initial thought here was people are not going to want to play the Chargers offense because there's just other spots that stand out more. Patriots defense has been pretty good. They've done well against different quarterbacks. Now, Dak put up a nice score, but he had to kind of, you know, work his way into overtime. A lot of that was fourth quarter overtime production. Uh, Tom Brady had a tough time in this matchup. But we've also seen Davis Mills do well in this matchup. We've seen Jameis Winston do well in this matchup. We should keep in mind that the Patriots are opponent-specific, and so sometimes those opponent-specific game plans can fall apart. Saying that differently, if you're opponent-specific, that basically is saying that you are trying to outmaneuver the opponent with your intellect and your strategy, which is prone to, it's, it's much more fragile. If it breaks, it can break hard. So Justin Herbert, somebody with a huge arm, somebody who attacks downfield, that's actually a very interesting spot to think about. Next game, Jacksonville and Seattle. I crossed this one off of my list pretty quickly as far as deep interest, just because uh, Geno Smith under center for the Seahawks, unlikely to push things and the Jaguars are unlikely to win like a 35 to 10 game. So those are my initial thoughts here. Washington at Denver. Eddie Bridgewater has had some good games this year, some 300-yard games, some three-touchdown games. Washington is one of the has been one of the worst pass defenses in the NFL. This is a spot that people will not be thinking of. Teddy Bridgewater gets Jerry Judy back this week. Taylor Heineke can make things happen just from a gunslinger standpoint. Bookmark this spot. 
Those are my big picture thoughts on this one. Last game, Tampa at New Orleans. Well, you can't run, right? It's easy to say, well, the Saints have a good defense and the Jameis Winston's under center for the Saints, right? But let's think positively here. Neither team can run in this spot. Tom Brady is going to be throwing. He's going to throw it 40 plus times as long as pace and play volume cooperate. Jameis Winston is probably going to end up throwing 35 to 40 times. In fact, Jameis Winston has recent pass attempts of 35 and 30 his last two games. And again, this is a spot where you're basically forced to throw the ball. Mark this spot. Very interesting. Okay, so now I'm going to go through each of these games again and say, what could I actually pull? from these games. What is interesting enough to me in these spots that I want to write them down as early week stacks or early week quarterbacks to consider. When we come out of this, we are going to actually only have four quarterbacks listed, okay? So we just went through all those games. There were some interesting spots on all of them, but now we have a better idea of how these games stack up against one another. So I'll go back to the top. I say, okay, let's go through these games again. Josh Allen is, is an excellent player to consider any week. When we get over to running back, you're going to see in wide receiver, there aren't a lot of running backs and wide receivers that you can feel really confident can put up 30 to 40 points this week. Some of them probably will, but you can't bet on them with high level of confidence. Well, Josh Allen can put up 30 to 40 points any week. 32 points last week, 39 points the week before that, 40 points a couple weeks before that. It's worth noting that those 40 points were in a blowout win. It was a little bit competitive throughout, which is what we're kind of hoping for in this spot. But you don't need it to be a back and forth game, like the game against Tennessee, the game against Kansas City. Josh Allen can put up 40 points. He's done it a bunch against Miami. He's put up huge games against Miami in the past. So I write down Josh Allen. But I also recognize... Stefan Diggs is priced really high. Stefan Diggs was already being overvalued coming into the season. We talked about that heading into the season because he's priced up in this range of the Devonte Adams and the this year Cooper Cups and these guys who occasionally put up 40 plus point games. Whereas Diggs is more like a 25, well last year was like 20, 22, 25, 27, 20, 22, 18 and then the occasional 29 to 30 point game. So he was priced up kind of similar to DeAndre Hopkins, more for his consistency than for his ceiling. So he's been down this year from a ceiling standpoint, but even that, if we're saying, hey, maybe there's some regression, well, we're paying a lot to try to get 30 points. We want slate breakers. We want to get first place. If we're paying for a guy in the mid 7K price range or the low 7K or high 7K price range, 30 points is awesome, but we want them to be able to go for 40. I say that Diggs can't, but is that really where we want to place our bet, spend most of our salary? So my next thought was, man, this Josh Allen, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley stack, which is the one that won Mike Johnson his first place finish a few weeks ago, is overlooked and pretty sharp. I started playing around with the numbers. These three players have combined for 75 to 80 points two of their last four games. 75 to 80 points is 4x their salary or more. That would be a great output, and it's a stack that most people don't get on, and so it immediately sets you apart. So what I wrote down from this game was Josh Allen, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley. Maybe that'll be the backbone of my rosters this week. Maybe I'll have none of it, but I just want to get a sense of where I could go on this slate, what I like on this slate, what stands out to me on this slate, and what's realistic on this slate. 
You don't even need Josh Allen. Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders have combined for 35 to 45 points two of their last four games. Basically, all you need for this to pay off, Dawson Knox is out. Running backs are still not being heavily utilized in the pass game. All you need for this to pay off is for the Bills to play well, the Dolphins to sell out to stop Stephon Diggs. Doesn't mean they'll be completely successful, but Diggs to kind of get slowed down enough that targets get filtered to these other two guys. So it's a high probability bet from a standpoint of, hey, look, I can get three spots right at once if just a couple things, a couple very realistic things break my way and it would be low owned. Next game, Rams at Houston. Like we're looking at 7,600 price tag on Matthew Stafford. We just isolated uh, Josh Allen at 8,100. So in this same price range, Matthew Stafford has to be able to beat Josh Allen. My Josh Allen stack is also going to be unique. I don't think that Matthew Stafford's going to go overlooked. So Matthew Stafford isn't getting put on my list at this point. I'm open to changing that as we get into the NFL edge, as we get deeper into the week, so on and so forth. But it's important to be able to be willing to build thoughts throughout the week just those thoughts. We get people asking a lot, you know, how do you kind of ensure that your thoughts throughout the week build so that you're not like leaving a bunch of stuff behind or starting over from scratch or holding too tightly these early week thoughts. So this is an example of exactly how we do this. We have to be willing and flexible in how we're seeing things, how we're building things. But when we get to, we move from Josh Allen to Matthew Stafford, we've already had the thought about this. Hey, maybe the Rams don't need to pass a lot here. Maybe we see 32, 33 passes from Stafford. Can he put up 25 to 30 points? Absolutely. But does it stand out to us when we've just looked at Josh Allen in the same price range? No. So at this point, it's not going on my list. Next, I get to this 49ers-Bears game again. And again, I have to think through it. I have to think, okay, well, the 49ers are playing with kind of a, a half of a deck right now. And so they're not going to try to just attack, attack, attack. They're going to be happy knowing that the Bears want to keep the ball on the ground. The 49ers will be happy trying to take a lead and then hold that lead. That should be our expectation here. So the 49ers are going to try to filter their offense through their best players. Debo Samuel has been getting double-digit targets basically every game. The best way to attack the Bears is through the air. So what actually stood out to me here as I'm going through and kind of talking about quarterbacks, looking at quarterbacks, is not Jimmy Garoppolo, not Justin Fields, but hey, Debo Samuel is pretty interesting here. Let me write him down. So right now I'm kind of looking for these quarterback stacks, but I'm also looking for any other pieces that I can pick up and add to my list. So I write, write down, think through that, write down Debo Samuel, move on to the next game. Cincinnati at the Jets, same sort of thing. It was, yeah, the, the Bengals could have a big game through the air, but it's likelier that if Burrow, Burrow's price tag has come all the way up to 7,100 from these competitive games where he's done really well, he's only 1K cheaper than Josh Allen. Is Burrow likely to put up 33? Now, Josh Allen might only put up 22 points, right? But we're saying, what's his ceiling? His ceiling is 35 to 40. We've isolated him pinned him down as a guy we're interested in for that fact. So other guys that get close to that price range have to be able to hit scores close to that score. Otherwise, when we're building, it's hard to justify going to these guys. So it's harder to paint a picture of Burrow having to go for 30 plus points in this spot. He could in the matchup, but from a game flow and coaching standpoint, that seems less likely. So what I end up doing is I write down Mixon from this game and move on. Tennessee at Indianapolis, I write down Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman and T.Y. Hilton, and A.J. Brown. Now, this tells a very specific story. This tells a story of 
two division opponents that know each other well playing each other. The Colts, who have an excellent run defense, trying to force the Titans to win through the air. The Titans doing a good job winning through the air with A.J. Brown, and the Colts having to pass. Now, I probably wouldn't have Wentz plus Pittman plus Hilton, because this is a team that likes to spread the ball around. But I want to list both of those guys so they have a sense of what is available in this spot. Again, Pittman's targets have been down the last couple of games because Wentz hasn't been throwing as much. But we don't know. If Wentz throws 36 times, Pittman could go right back to 10, 11, 12 targets. We really think that T.Y. Hilton stepping in for eight, nine, 10 targets, right? And taking significant targets away from Pittman. Maybe on one week that happens, but it's pretty likely that we continue to see some double digit Pittman games in the spot. Pittman costs 5,300, Wentz costs 5,700. That's a very interesting pairing, 11K, and they can put up 50 plus points. Double digit targets for Pittman, downfield looks for Pittman. Wentz averages about 25 rushing yards a game when his ankles are healthy. He did last year. He has so far this year. Uh, He's going to take some downfield shots. He's going to throw one or two touchdown passes. So that's what I end up writing down here. Why not Tannehill? Well, this price tag, this 1K difference in price tag, without a major difference in the way I would project these two, puts me on Wentz. That doesn't mean I wouldn't go to Tannehill. That doesn't mean things won't change throughout the week. But I end up writing down Wentz, Pittman, Hilton, A.J. Brown. Next game, Pittsburgh-Cleveland. I write down nothing. I'm focused on the quarterbacks. I kind of think through this game. Nothing standing out to me yet from this game. Move on to Philadelphia at Detroit. Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts, let's look at his pass attempts. 34, 26, 37, 48, 39. This offense is so broken. They are not designing anything around their strengths. They keep talking about running the ball and then not running the ball. And Jalen Hurts is throwing the ball as often as Tom Brady. That's pretty interesting to think about in a matchup against Detroit. And let's look at his rushing attempts against the worst run defense in football. I guess they're not the worst anymore after what they did to Daryl Henderson, but one of the worst rushing defenses in football by the numbers. 13 attempts, 10 attempts, 9 attempts, 8 attempts, 9 attempts, 10 attempts. He's basically getting DeAndre Swift's on-the-ground workload, Tom Brady's through-the-air workload. That's a pretty interesting piece. Obviously, his fantasy production has backed that up. Obviously, he is still a pretty raw player and things could go wrong, but basically 24 plus points in all but one game this season. He can get up over 30. It's a really interesting matchup. So I write down Jalen Hurts. Next up, Carolina at Atlanta. One of the things that stands out to me, we talked about Sam Darnold a minute ago. One of the things that stood out to me on this second pass through was, hey, let's go a level deeper. What do I really think about Sam Darnold here? We know that the Atlanta defense doesn't scare us that much, but what has Sam Darnold really done? He had those five rushing touchdowns to start the season. That's not something we're rostering him for. Five rushing touchdowns and all of the bad games this offense have been since Christian McCaffrey was out. You lose your best player. It makes sense that the offense struggles a little bit. If we take out those five rushing touchdowns, Sam Darnold's first four games averaged about 17 fantasy points per game. So that doesn't stand out to us that much. Not to say that he couldn't go for 25 to 30, but if I'm comparing him to Carson Wentz, who's in the same price range, I'm going to be more drawn to Carson Wentz in a likelier shootout than I am in this spot where we have to worry about Atlanta outmaneuvering the Panthers defense. We have to worry about Sam Darnold playing well. So Sam Darnold, for now, isn't being added to my list. And same thing with Matt Ryan. 
New England at the Chargers. I end up adding Herbert because I've identified him as somebody who can go for 40 points and that nobody will be on. The next thought then is, who do you stack Herbert with? Well, we know that the Patriots are going to try to take away what an offense wants to do. What the offense wants to do, right? We saw them do this with the Cowboys. It was like, throw to anybody but Amari or CeeDee Lamb. Now, CeeDee Lamb ended up busting out in the second half and in overtime. But for a lot of that game, the Cowboys couldn't get the ball to either of those guys. The Cowboys had to win on the ground, and then they had to win through Schultz between the 20s. Schultz was double covered close to the end zone, so they were forced to go other places in the red zone. Uh, Cedric Wilson saw, I think it was seven targets that game. So it would be easy to say, hey, maybe Jalen Guyton, maybe Josh Palmer. But what's actually going to happen? What is this coaching staff actually going to do? Look at all the running back targets that come against the Patriots. Just last week, uh, Michael Carter and Ty Johnson combined for like 15 running back targets against the Patriots. The Patriots don't have any linebackers who can cover Austin Eckler. The Patriots are prone to giving up big plays because they're kind of a slower, very smart, but older, slower defense. So I write down Justin Herbert and Austin Eckler in this spot. Jacksonville, Seattle, nothing. Washington at Denver. I compare Bridgewater to Wentz. Bridgewater still is is kind of floating around in my head, but I end up not adding him to my list at this point. Tampa at New Orleans, same thing, not adding either of these quarterbacks. So what we have now after passing through these games twice is a really strong sense of what this slate offers, how this slate stacks up game by game against each other and what we're competing against in different price ranges. So we're not getting married to price tags. We're not getting married to players. We're just getting a feel for the slate. And what I have written down is Josh Allen, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley, Carson Wentz, uh, Michael Pittman, T.Y. Helton in parentheses, which means, you know, maybe I won't play him, maybe I will, uh, and A.J. Brown. Jalen Hurts with no stacking partners yet. Justin Herbert and Austin Eckler. So the next thing we do is we go over to running back. And what I'm going to do at running back is go game by game again, and then go bottom up. Game by game, not making decisions yet, just getting a sense of what this slate offers. Miami at Buffalo, split backfields. That's not where I'm looking at first. Now, I might circle back to this. Maybe I go through all the games on the slate, recognize this slate offers almost nothing at running back, and or, or maybe it's a slate where there's a bunch of expensive wide receivers that I really want to fit in, and I don't think most people will be able to fit in multiples of these high-priced wide receivers, and so I take some risk at running back, and maybe these split backfield guys are the places to take those risks. But right now, my initial thought is just, hey, split backfields, move on. Next one, Rams at Houston. Houston, split backfield, move on. Rams, Daryl Henderson is going to have a great matchup. Write down Daryl Henderson. Next one, San Francisco at Chicago. Eli Mitchell's interesting. Know that the 49ers don't really use their running backs in the pass game. Eli Mitchell has four targets all season. He had 18 carries this last game and zero targets. So you're basically taking a yardage and touchdown back in a game where you don't expect a ton of points to be scored and in a game where you're expecting the 49ers to kind of lean through the air, right? I've already written down Debo. So Eli Mitchell is not going on my list at this point, but Khalil Herbert becomes very interesting. We know that the Bears are going to lean on him. The Bears lean on him against the Bucs, and nobody leans on their running backs against the Bucs. Khalil Herbert had 18 carries against the Bucs. 
Furthermore, Damian Williams, who we expected to be there for the pass-catching role, had one target, while Khalil Herbert had five. Furthermore, Khalil Herbert caught all five of those targets. This guy who had 34 catches his whole college career now has eight targets the last two games. So Khalil Herbert is kind of the centerpiece of this Bears offense. He's still pretty much a yardage and touchdown back because they don't want to throw. So we still only expect two to three targets for him, but he gets added to the list at this point. I've already talked about really liking watching him on film. So Khalil Herbert, Daryl Henderson are the running backs we've added so far. We already wrote down Joe Mixon earlier. Nothing else from this Bengals and Jets game. Is he at Indianapolis? We've already talked about the expectation that the Colts will try to make the Titans one-dimensional and try to take out Derrick Henry. I am not in the habit of paying for a 9K running back in a really tough matchup, hoping that he gets to 30 points because 30 points doesn't help us win a tournament from a 9K player. It's great. I, I w- would love to get 30 points from any player, but that's just not how I build my roster. So for me, I'm not adding Derrick Henry to this list. Jonathan Taylor, though, is one of these guys who if I get too deep into the numbers and too deep into what I know and too deep into thinking about volume it kind of gets cut off my list. Because, you know, 15, 16, 17 carries, and sometimes the targets are there, sometimes they're not. But if we talk about guys who could break the slate, guys who could put up 30 plus points, 34, 35 points, Jonathan Taylor is very much in that range, especially in this matchup against Tennessee. So Jonathan Taylor gets added to my list. Pittsburgh at Cleveland, I add nothing. Nick Chubb is interesting. Najee Harris for the huge workload is interesting. But just given the, what I, you know, this is the sort of game where you kind of expect like a 23 to 20 score. And so not adding anything to my list from this game at the moment. Philadelphia at Detroit. We talked last week about this idea of opportunity score. So rather than just looking at how many carries a guy has or how many carries plus targets, instead thinking more in terms of like a projection system, what is a carry worth versus what is a target worth? And what we talked about last week is for most players, especially most running backs priced 6K and above, one target is worth two carries. In other words, to get a true opportunity score, as far as and taking out touchdowns, just see points produced from yardage catches, one target is going to be worth two carries, sometimes even more, a lot of times even more. A player like Tondre Swift, even more. But just a basic opportunity score, we can 2x a player's targets and add that to his carries. So most guys, like Jonathan Taylor, his opportunity score is about 21, I think, on the season. And most guys are going to be in this you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 range. If we multiply DeAndre Swift's targets and add them to his carries, well, he had 10 targets last week. That's 20 plus his 13 carries for an opportunity score of 33. The week before that, seven targets, 14 added to 13 carries, 27. So we don't want to be fooled by the lower carries on somebody like DeAndre Swift. We also know that he's the center piece of this offense. We also know that we've already talked about, we expect this game to be kind of competitive throughout. We also know that the Eagles have shifted their defense from reading the NFL edge this year, from reading stuff on OWS. We know that the Eagles have shifted their defense and they have basically been giving up yards on the ground in order to prevent downfield passing. And this is just like a huge hole in their defense. The running backs are having a great season against the Eagles. DeAndre Swift gets added to the list. Uh, Carolina and Atlanta. I feel like I've been trying to fit Chuba Hubbard into a category. He doesn't fit in as a player. 
I could come to regret that because the workload has continued to be there, but I'm not adding him to the list at this point. Cordero Patterson took over the backfield last week. I actually played Patterson on two of my three rosters last week and uh, opportunity score last week, 24 for Cordero Patterson. The week before that, 32. The week before that, 18, 21, 21. So when we say that most of these running backs are getting about 20 to 21 opportunity score, Cordero Patterson really stands out. Now the matchup's awful. So I don't end up adding him to my list yet, but I have him in my mind. And he's a guy that I keep thinking, I hope he fails this week so I can play him next week or the next week because people still aren't taking Patterson seriously from an ownership perspective. Uh, The Patriots at the Chargers, we've already added Austin Eckler. Damian Harris is obviously run funnel matchup, but the Patriots would need to keep pace for Damian Harris. And he's priced up at 6,100. He needs to score about... 25 points just to justify his salary. We're hoping he can get to 30. That's a tough sell for me for a yardage and touchdown back on a team that will probably be playing from behind. So he doesn't get added. Jacksonville at Seattle. Alex Collins gets added as basically a yardage and touchdown back, but at only 5,300, he goes on the list in a great matchup. You could add James Robinson. I did not, mostly because James Robinson last year was like, Everyone always wanted to roster him and he would always get like 18 to 22, 23 points, which is super strong production, but it's not winning you a tournament. If I'm paying 6,600, I want to be targeting 30 plus points and James Robinson can get there, but he's going to get there less often than other guys in his price range. So I rarely end up going to him. Uh, Washington at Denver, not adding any of those backs. Tampa at New Orleans. Camara could be added. I did not end up adding him myself. So now what we have is Josh Allen, Manny Sanders, Cole Beasley, Vince Pittman, Hilton, A.J. Brown, Hertz, Herbert, Eckler, Mixon, Jonathan Taylor, Daryl Henderson, Andre Swift, Alex. This can change. This can develop. But we have a sense now of what this slate offers us at different positions, how we're seeing the slate, how other people might be seeing the slate, and how these different positions stack up against one another. Wide receiver. We might not get to that many questions tonight, but I think this is extremely valuable to go through because it basically allows you to step inside my mind for a minute to see how I authentically build things and can hopefully help you see not how I think, but how you can take the way I think and apply it to the way you think. So you can come up with processes to help you start seeing a slate from a game coaching production game environment standpoint and put pieces of rosters together from there. Uh, Miami at Buffalo, we already covered the pass catchers in this spot. Uh, Jalen Waddell could end up being added to a Bills stack, uh, but I'm not worried about that right now. Right now I'm looking for just like, who are the best plays? Who stands out to me right now? Again, we want to kind of give ourselves an opportunity to focus on one thing at a time. So I don't want to think too deeply about, okay, now I'll build this stack this way. Instead, I'm just trying to get a sense of who are the sharpest plays on the slate based on coaching and teams and matchups and game environments and all that. So we've got our bills receivers added. We move past the Rams and Houston game because that's not a spot where we've been super interested in the passing attack so far. We already have Debo written down from the San Francisco-Chicago game. If the Bears wideouts couldn't get it done against the Bucks, they're not a place that I'm going to be going to this week. I'm willing to be wrong on that. Brandon Ayuk is somebody you kind of notice because, you know, he can get these four, six target games and we're still all waiting for Shanahan to suddenly be like, here you go. Here's eight to 10 targets. This is what everybody expected from you. But Ayuk's not getting added to my list just yet. 
Cincinnati at the Jets, we've already kind of moved past the passing attacks in this one, so I'm not adding anything at this point. Again, Chase, Burrow, they're priced up for competitive games that they've been in and the ways that they've produced in those competitive games. It's harder to see them both going for 30 plus 30 points in this Jets matchup, which is what they need just in order to pay off their price tags and 35 to 40 in order to be like true, true tournament winners. Move on from that spot. We already noted A.J. Brown, Michael Pittman, T.Y. Hilton in this Tennessee-Indianapolis game. Move on to Pittsburgh and Cleveland. This is the first spot where we've already judged the passing attacks from the quarterback level and the game environment level. And now we get down to the individual player level. And there's somebody who wasn't standing out to me yet who stands out now. Deontay Johnson. You all know my love for Deontay Johnson, but the targets are always there. He had a two-target game a couple weeks ago. Other than that, 13, 13, 12, and 10. He's rarely going to get over 100 yards because he's just this short area roll. But touchdowns, three touchdowns on the year, it wouldn't be crazy for him to run into a multi-touchdown game. Deontay Johnson, just from a standpoint of the offense flows through him. He's so safe. His worst game on the year was 14.6 fantasy points. So I write down Deontay Johnson. And then thinking more deeply into this spot, I think, well, not only does the offense, entire offense run through Deontay Johnson, but the entire offense also runs through Najee Harris. So let me write down Najee Harris as well. He didn't stand out to me from a game environment standpoint, from a matchup standpoint, but from a pure volume standpoint. And the fact that volume can lead to, leads to floor and can lead to ceiling. Let's write both these guys down. And then nobody's going to play Chase Claypool. And Chase Claypool, as we know, as Larejo can tell you, can pop for these huge games when people are not expecting him to pop for these huge games. He can end up with a 10, 12 target game or even a six target game with some huge downfield plays where he ends up putting up a big score. So I end up writing down all three of these guys. Then I also write down Odell Beckham because it stands out to me that he's only 4,600. Now I recognize that people want him to produce more than he's been producing, which means that as his price drops, ownership interest remains decently high. So I'd have to have something that really makes me want to go there because I would be expecting that the field will notice this spot. But I write down all of these guys and then move on to the next game. Philadelphia at Detroit. Well, I want to write down Devontae Smith because he doesn't really stand out, but we've already written down Hertz. And we know that Smith is the guy who's going to see seven to nine to 11 targets in this spot that we expect to be competitive. You can end up stacking this game at a higher level than the field would. Hertz plus Devontae Smith plus DeAndre Swift, is an interesting way to go. You take the the sharpest plays from each side, but because it's a spot that most people wouldn't be stacking, you're automatically doing something really different than the field. Carolina at Atlanta. Guess what wide receiver stands out here? Christian McCaffrey's still out. Robbie Anderson has target counts of 11, 7, 11, and 9 in his last four games. He has managed to catch eight passes on 27 targets the last three weeks. That happens with Robbie Anderson. If you've been around DFS, you know, you sit around waiting forever for the Robbie Anderson explosion game. Everybody finally moves off of him and then he puts up a 36 point score or whatever it is. So Robbie Anderson, 4,700 gets written down here. Uh, The New England LA Chargers game, we already said that the Patriots will probably try to take away Mike Williams, Keenan Allen. So they're not getting added yet. Jags and Seattle, I'm not adding anyone from that game. Washington at Denver, Cortland Sutton gets added. 
Jerry Judy gets added. Terry McLaurin could be added as well. Although Terry McLaurin at that 7,600 price tag, you know, you're really needing a, a type of game that would be hard for him to hit in this matchup. Whereas Sutton against Washington, Judy against Washington could end up hitting those huge games. Uh, Tampa Bay. We'll dig into this deeper into the week, I'm sure. But Marshawn Lattimore has dominated Mike Evans. In fact, I think Scott Barrett had some stats on our podcast today that in their last three games against each other, Lattimore has been on Mike Evans for 71% of his routes. And on those 71% of his routes in three games, Evans has five targets and zero catches. So it becomes a situation somewhat similar to last week. Assuming Gronk is still out, you have this team that's going to be passing with a really good quarterback and the target tree tightened up. So Godwin, Antonio Brown, but also in a matchup against a tough defense in the Saints, the player likeliest to get the targets is the guy who has those short area moves, those tight area moves and quickness, which is Antonio Brown. So Antonio Brown gets written down with the understanding on my end that you could also write down Chris Godwin. Also, I mean, technically Evans could have a big game, but we're talking about what's likeliest to happen, what stands out to us. Next thing I do at wide receiver, I go bottom up and I'm going to go game by game to go bottom up to sort of simplify my process and make sure I'm not overlooking anything. First game, Miami Buffalo, nothing stands out to me. Next game, Rams and Houston. I have to write down Nico Collins because he's on the field all the time. We expect this team to be behind. Uh, Van Jefferson's always in play, but we don't. I'm not expecting the uh, this game to be super competitive, not expecting the Rams to pass a ton. So Nico Collins gets added as a salary saver. We Next game, San Francisco, Chicago, we've already added Ayuk to the list. Next game, Cincinnati and the Jets, no salary saver stand out here. Tennessee and Indy, no salary saver stand out here. Pittsburgh and Cleveland, we've already added Odell Beckham. Philadelphia and Detroit. Quez Watkins. So I went game by game, right? And I'm kind of looking at these players, examining them, making sure that I'm not overlooking anything. Quez Watkins, recent recent target counts of four, five, three, and seven. Basically an average of about five targets per game. Every game, two to three catches, three, three to 48 yards, right? That's five consecutive games. But six targets at 4k in salary with a huge downfield role or big explosiveness uh he's had some end zone targets throughout the year that didn't connect yet no touchdowns yet quez watkins is the kind of player who at 4k you could play him and he could end up with four catches for 110 yards and a touchdown that's what we want to be looking for on these cheaper guys in tournaments right the kind of guy who can put up 5x 6x his salary sure he could bomb but if quez watkins bombs he's still getting you seven eight points most weeks and he could hit for this huge game in a matchup against a detroit defense that as we know is one of the easiest defenses to attack downfield quez watkins gets added to the list we've already added robbie anderson from the next game nobody to add from new england and the chargers nobody to add from jacksonville and seattle uh, we've added judy already from washington and denver and nobody to add for me from tampa and new orleans Okay, so I'm going to read through the list that we now have. Then I'm going to show you how I ended up building around this. I'm going to, I'll do it relatively quickly. And that will give us about 25 minutes for questions. So right now, we have Josh Allen, Manny Sanders, and Cole Beasley. We have Carson Wentz, Michael Pittman, T.Y. Hilton, and A.J. Brown. We have Hertz and Andy Smith at later. We have Herbert and Eckler. Running back, we have Jonathan Taylor, we have Daryl Henderson, we have Joe Mixon, we have DeAndre Swift, we have Alex Collins, we have Khalil Herbert. At wide receiver, we have Debo, who was added 
when we were looking at quarterbacks. We have Najee and Deontay and Claypool. Now, Najee's not a wide receiver, but he was added outside of the running back, so I just kind of leave him in with these Steelers wide receivers. We have Sutton and Judy. We have Antonio Brown, Brandon Ayuk, Robbie Anderson, Nico Collins, and Quez Watkins. So what I'm going to do at this point, I don't need to go through tight end yet. I don't need to go through defense yet because defense and tight end, I will be kind of guided through them based on various builds throughout the week. I can get a sense of those positions based on my builds. So the first thing I do on this roster is I say, look, what do I think I'm, what am I most drawn toward at the moment from like a ceiling standpoint, from a getting hopefully to 230, 240 plus points standpoint, it's this Josh Allen, Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders stack. It takes up three spots on my roster. We're not worried about tight end and defense yet. So that's a great start. We already have three of our seven spots covered. Josh Allen, Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders. The next thing I do is I've already gone through this whole slate, right? There were no high-priced wide receivers who stood out to us besides Debo Samuel. And Debo Samuel isn't like a locked and loaded high certainty guy. He can get you 30 points. He can also get you 15 points in this offense. So we start recognizing that at least right now, at this point in the week, given the way I'm seeing things on this first wave of passing through the slate, that the place where I'm likeliest to want to spend salary is running back. We identified Khalil Herbert. We identified Alex Collins. And it's easy to say, okay, let's go to the cheap guys here and then see what else we can fit. But we also want to think about how this slate sets up as a whole. And where are we likeliest to get these 35-point scores? So what I end up doing is I put in DeAndre Swift Austin Eckler. Now, one of my favorite types of rosters is the one that when it's all said and done, you say, wait, how did all these players fit onto one roster? So we've got an $8,100 quarterback in Josh Allen. We've added a $7,900 running back in Austin Eckler, a $7,100 running back in DeAndre Swift. And this is why I talked a couple of weeks ago about like wanting to break out of thinking too much about salary and thinking more about what we're getting on our roster in terms of raw points, right? Salary matters because it the salary cap is sharp. But if we can put together rosters that we look at it afterward and say, wait, how did I fit all those players onto this roster? That's a great place to be. So I put these two running backs on knowing that we might have to adjust things, knowing that maybe not everything will fit. But now we've got Josh Allen, we've got DeAndre Swift, we've got Austin Eckler, we've got Emmanuel Sanders, we've got Cole Beasley. We have wide receiver and flex left, plus tight end and defense. At wide receiver, already at this point, if you're building along with me, you see that salary is getting tightened up. And we're basically sitting on about like 4K left per player that we can actually spend. 3150 left per player. So we know that we want to go to one of our cheaper wide receivers. We know that Nico Collins isn't the guy we want to go to, even though he saves us a little bit of extra salary because him, we're just saying, hey, he's on the field a lot. They're going to be passing a lot. Hopefully he gets you 12, 13 points. So who's the cheap wide receiver who we have felt has the most upside? There's Robbie Anderson. There's Jerry Judy. I am going to go with Quez Watkins. Now, this is not final answer, right? I can always change things, but what I'm wanting to do is get a sense of how different rosters can be built, what can fit on a roster. By putting Quez Watkins, now I'm sitting on 4,200 left per spot. So you would think we're probably on like a relative value the rest of the way. But we always want to judge the tight end and defense positions by saying, hey, 
is this a place where we can save salary? Is this a place where we can pay down and get pretty solid production or the same type of production that we could get by spending 2K more? So I'm going to go through tight end extremely quickly by basically just getting to the answer, right? This is building a roster. This is not my final roster on the week. This is just helping me get a sense of the slate. And so what I do is I go down to the cheaper guys and I say, who among the cheaper guys is pretty likely to get six, seven, eight points and could legitimately get 15 points. Well, Hayden Hurst is one guy. We noticed that Hayden Hurst has still been on the field. Recent target counts of four, five, and four. So Hayden Hurst, let's put that in the back pocket. He's probably capped at about four or five targets, but you know, he can get you seven, eight points. And if you get really lucky, he gets you 15. Jonu Smith is banged up. That makes Hunter Henry interesting if we end up spending a little bit more in salary. Uh, there are some other guys down here that we consider. Cole Komet could be a, you know another four or five target game. Mo Alley-Cox is, is kind of in this old Colts Ebron role where it's like he's not seeing any targets, but so, so he could have a zero point game, but the targets he sees are high value. They're downfield, they're in the end zone. So Mo Alley-Cox keeps putting up these big games on like no workload. You know, he can get a zero, he can get you 12 to 15 points. But then we get down to 2,800 and spot Dan Arnold, a guy who the Jaguars traded for, a guy who saw eight targets against Tennessee two weeks ago, five targets against Miami. Five to eight targets, if that is his range, and we do expect the Jags to be passing because that's part of what the Jags have been doing, five to eight targets at 2,800 is really nice, especially because Dan Arnold doesn't have a Jonu Smith four yards downfield role. He has an intermediate role. He's going to catch some passes 10, 12, 15 yards down the field. So let's put Dan Arnold on here and see what fits. Well, now we have 4,900 left per player. But if we can get a cheap defense, we're starting to realize, hey, we might have 7K left over for this flex spot. So let's go down to the cheap defenses. Oh, actually, and as I was building this, one of the things that I did next, because I really like Antonio Brown this week, was I put in Antonio Brown to see what that would leave me left over. And that leaves me 3,700. Now, at this point, uh, this was last night. It wasn't announced yet that Mike White would be starting for the Jets. Uh, I assumed that Flacco, after the trade, would step in and just have kind of a game manager role. Bengals at 3,600 stand out, obviously. But so I put in Antonio Brown. There was 3,600 left over. And Bengals at 3,600 is the way to go. But I started thinking, Antonio Brown, there's still a lot of guesswork, 6,100, right? He could end up with a 12, 13-point game. He could end up with 25 to 30. But I bet if we can get up to the 7Ks, we could have a higher probability of a 30-point score. And I bet there are some other good defenses down here in this 2K range. So I went down below 3K on defense, and two defenses stood out to me. One was the Bears at home against Jimmy Garoppolo. The Bears have actually been playing really well. 21 sacks on the season, which is an incredible number of sacks. Uh, negative two points against Tampa. No surprises there. Only three points against Green Bay, but nine points against a, a Raiders team that's been playing really well. Nine points against Detroit, five points against a good Cleveland team, 20 points against Joe Burrow, and zero points against the Rams. So the Bears at 2,700 could easily put up five to eight points with upside for more at home against the 49ers. And then we've talked about the Colts and Titans. Division opponents, the Colts are going to try to make the Titans one-dimensional. The Colts are going to try to stop Derrick Henry and force the Titans to win through the air. The Colts 
have seven interceptions and nine fumble recoveries on the year. And it's worth understanding that these things are not accidental. Teams that have an aggressive mindset, a get-after-the-ball mindset, they're coached that way, their defenses are designed that way. We see them continue to force turnovers throughout the season. They're likely to give up some big plays, but they're going to force turnovers throughout the season. So let's look at what the Colts have done this year. 11 points on defense in the rain against San Francisco, 15 points against Houston, three points against a really good Ravens offense, eight points against Miami, seven points on the road against the same Titans team, 11 points against the Rams. If you got seven to 11 points at 2,600, that's a pretty good setup on defense. So these are kind of the two defenses I circle. I put in the Bears first to see what that leaves me in salary. It leaves me with 7,100, which puts me in this Mike Evans, Joe Mixon, AJ Brown range. I don't feel that this is much better than the Antonio Brown play. But what I want to do is say, hey, I also consider this defense at 2,600 that would make me save me an extra 100 bucks. What do I get if I go up to 7,200? I go up to 7,200 there's Jonathan Taylor at 7,200. And the defense we had looked at at 2,600 was the Colts defense. And so I swapped from Bears down to Colts. I put Jonathan Taylor in the flex, technically move him up to running back, move Austin Eckler down to the flex because Austin Eckler has the later start time. And what this gives us is a roster that looks really nice on paper. Uh, in fact, don't use this because I might end up using this roster myself this weekend, but a roster that looks really nice on paper, right? Josh Allen at quarterback, Austin Eckler, DeAndre Swift, and Jonathan Taylor at running back. Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders, Quez Watkins at wide receiver, Dan Arnold, and the Colts defense. Next thing I want to do is go through this and say, can it get to 200 points? Well, we've already said that Josh Allen plus these two wideouts have combined for 75 to 80 a couple times in their last four games. So let's we're going to go through and say, hey, what's a reasonable best case scenario? Let's give these guys 80 points. What's a reasonable best case scenario for Eckler? Let's give him 30. We know that Eckler can go for 35 to 40. That's part of the reason we want to roster him. But let's give him 30. Andre Swift, what's a reasonable best case scenario? Let's give him 30. So now we're sitting at 140 points if these three spots come together. Next, we get down to Quez Watkins and Dan Arnold. Well, we can definitely paint the picture for either of these guys getting 20, but those are kind of outlier scores. We also know that each of these guys, if they bomb, should still get six, seven, eight points. So let's go kind of, hey, we said 30 points for Eckler. We said 30 points for Swift. It's pretty reasonable that if Quez and Dan Arnold both hit relatively well, they could combine for 30 points. Maybe one of them gets 18, one of them gets 12. Maybe they both get 15. So we give them 30 points. So now we're sitting at 170 points. Jonathan Taylor, what can he get? Let's give him 30 points, right? Again, same thing with our other running backs. He could go for 35. He could, could go for 40. He could go for 15, but we're talking about can this roster reasonably and realistically go for 200 plus? Jonathan Taylor, 30 points. We're sitting at 200 and we have not factored in the Colts defense yet. So basically we're already at a point where 85th percentile from all our guys gets us to about 210, 215 points with upside for more. That's how I get an overview of the week. How I get a sense of what the week offers. and probably most importantly of all, how I see little things that we can put onto rosters to sort of unlock other things, whether it's a clearer path to first place because you're doing something differently or player pairings. 
is by building in this way. And all of a sudden, we end up with this Jonathan Taylor Colts pairing that I would never have seen from thinking through each game. But because of the way this roster came together, recognize, hey, we already talked about Wentz, Pittman, Hilton, A.J. Brown. That's kind of where people are going to be going. But there is a very clear way for this game to play out. That is, the Colts control this game at home, making the Titans one-dimensional and then doing a good enough job stopping the pass that the Colts are playing with a lead throughout. How does that happen? The Colts probably force some turnovers, maybe even get a defensive touchdown. Jonathan Taylor has some big runs. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a pairing that nobody's going to be on that works really well together that could go for 50 combined points. Jonathan Taylor could get 35. The Colts defense could get 15. And that would be likeliest to happen in a game together. So at 9,800, they could go for over 5x the combined salary. And now I have this Jonathan Taylor Colts pairing that I can keep in mind as I go through my builds throughout the week. So that is how I go from big picture to small picture. And what I would optimally do, and I would do this a lot more if I had more time at this point, uh, I have less time because of all the stuff with the site, but I would do this 20, 30, 40 times. So in other words, I'm not going to start my next roster saying, all right, Josh Allen, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley again. I'm not going to start my next roster saying, all right, we want, we like Eckler, Swift, and Jonathan Taylor this week. Instead, I'm going to start from scratch again. Maybe even think through all the games again and come up with different angles, add to my list, move pieces around on my list, strengthen thoughts in certain places, understand in other places, hey, I, I thought this was a sharp, Place, but as I think about it more and more, it really doesn't stack up against these other spots. And that's what I mean by making this like flexible for yourself. That's what I mean by being authentically unique in the way that you're building is thinking through each game. I haven't looked at Vegas totals. I haven't thought about Vegas totals. All I've thought about is how these teams match up, how these coaches match up, how each team might try to win and how I would build around those scenarios. And this is basically how I built my DFS career was doing this in baseball and in football for years, never once looked at the at the Vegas lines for baseball or for football and just thought through these things on my own and built rosters that sometimes were very wrong, but when they were right, they were very right. So with that, uh, again, we took a lot more time than I was expecting to, but like I said, I think that's extraordinarily valuable stuff for you guys to have. Aaron, let me go ahead and pull you on right away without any preamble, uh, and we'll get to as many questions as we can before uh, I start getting the kids to bed early for our early or light. Yeah, and just to, uh, I know you're looking for the words. So this was in Larejo's article, and it's by Naval, and it's escape competition through authenticity is the the quote. I love that. And one of the things, I, I think you, you and I have talked about this, but one of the things I've realized over the last five years or so that everybody is drawn toward is honesty and authenticity. And one of the reasons that everybody's drawn toward that is because everybody is technically capable of giving honesty and authenticity. Most people are so bad at being honest and authentic with their own selves that they are incapable of giving honesty and authenticity. So people are drawn to honesty and authenticity externally. And that's part of the reason why honesty and authenticity is so successful is because most people aren't capable of embracing and producing honesty and authenticity. So if you guys can get to that point where you're building honest and authentic 
certain unique rosters through your own mind and not worrying about not not thinking about oh I'm fading these players. Instead, you're just thinking about like oh I'm fading these players. Everybody else is on right. You're not thinking that. You're just thinking here's how I see the slate. Let's put it together and then let's judge if I need to worry about strategy from there. But more often than not, you're not going to have to think about strategy from there because more often than not, your rosters are going to be so uniquely different because you've thought through them in a unique, authentic way. So um, yeah. Uh, with that, on to questions. Uh, we actually only have one right now. So if anybody wants to jump in, wait, uh, raise your hand. Otherwise, uh, we'll let Jam go early so we can get uh, packing and get the kids ready for tomorrow. Um, but this one's from Dink Puppy. With Cooper Cup going for over 30 DK points in four of seven weeks, does it make sense to continue to roster him at his price? It's 9K right now. Uh, it seems hard to pass up the raw points and consistency. What, in your opinion, would be the correct way to play him as his price continues to climb, given Stafford plus Cup would take significant, a significant amount of your salary? So the... Question is, in fact, this was, I think, from Larejo's article as well, but it was something about, uh, you know, using past performance to predict what will happen in the future is um, one of the worst, like, logical processes you can follow. Now, you can take information about what has happened in the future and apply it moving forward, but to assume that a player will have, you know, a player's had five huge games in a row. And that doesn't mean that they will have a huge game in the next game. That tells us that their usage is something that tells us that their skill level is something. But every individual week, every individual game, we want to think about the game environment. So the reason I wasn't on cup last week was because we expected the Rams to be up by a bunch. And so for me, it was the price tag you're paying and the production you need at that price tag is so high. That the chances of him reaching that are lower than some of the other places where I could spend my salary. Because in order for him to reach that type of score, you need the Lions to make this game deeply competitive throughout. That was what the Lions ended up doing. So basically... The production was there again. The price went up even higher. And now it's like you're it's like you're doubling down on your bets, right? So you have to look at the unique individual situation for this unique specific week and say, do I want to double down again? The price has gone up and the uh, Rams are playing the Texans. So do I expect the Texans to give the Rams a run for their money? Do I expect Cooper Cup to have... 36 or more point game, which is kind of what you're saying. Now, as we get into these bi-week crunches and injuries, and um, you know, especially as we get deeper into the season, a lot of the good teams are not on the main slate. The salary multiplier goes out of the window a little bit on some of these higher priced guys, right? Like if you can get 32 to 33 points from somebody and the salary works out, you're not sacrificing things in other places. Maybe you're on a cheaper stack that you feel can go for, you know, a quarterback plus two wide receivers. And you're like, yeah, this can go for 75 points. Um, and I'm I'm over here rostering Josh Allen and two wideouts trying to get 75 to 80 points. And you think that this stack that costs 3k less could put up the same type of score and then it's like well yeah i've got this extra salary let me get to cooper cup then fine but also like for me never want to fall into the trap of just thinking well got this extra salary left over let's go to cooper cup because he's had all these huge games he'll probably do it again because 
he's just as likely to go for 15 points on a week like this as he is to go for a huge game. So uh, I always want to think about how points were produced and think about what I expect to happen this week. I'm fine being wrong, but if most of my competition is looking backward and then just applying that forward, and I'm able to think uniquely through an individual game and say, okay, this is how I expect this game to play out and how I expect production to be to be produced um, as a result, then I can basically say, well, that's not drawing my interest. So again, for me, it's not a thought of fading cup, but instead it's saying to me, I'm not seeing that as the best place to spend salary this week. Now we're, we're saying this on Tuesday, right? I'm just talking about how I think through these things, how I've been thinking through this slate so far this week. And that could change as we get deeper into the week. But yeah, so for me, as a player's price tag goes up, I want to think very directly and specifically about that week's game. And I want to think very directly and specifically about how putting that player onto my roster affects everything else on my roster. He certainly wouldn't be a starting point on a week like this because then he's restrictive, right? You now have 41K in salary left that you're working with on the rest of your spots and you have to make sacrifices elsewhere just to fit cup. If the salary were there, I might assess and say, okay, is this the guy I want to go to? Or do I want to rework things and maybe go down to like a Debo Samuel and expect that he's going to outscore cup and free up some extra salary for other spots in my roster. So, um, but yeah, to me, the more we can break out of the mindset of like, missing out on plays and fading plays and stuff like that. And the more we can move towards saying, I'm not worried about what I'm not playing. I'm just worried about what I'm playing. You know, that's the Cubs fan mindset. It's, it's how you end up on these kind of off the wall plays to other people is because you're not in this box where you're thinking about, okay, everybody's on these numbers, everybody on these players, everybody's on these game environments. And how do I think very much by the numbers and do that? But instead you're thinking, okay, let me build around this game in this way and pull in these pieces and then judge it and say, can this roster go for 200 plus points? And if the answer is yes, who cares who you faded to get there? You have a roster that can go for 200 plus points. That's probably unique from what other people are doing. So um, I think the cup could easily go for 35 to 40 points in this matchup. Uh, but I think the people will probably overrate his likelihood of doing that. And so for me, he wasn't a player who stood out to me at the top and I feel like I can put together rosters that can get me to 200 plus points without him. But I bet you could build some 200 plus point rosters with him as well. So it's just, you know, it's thinking through that specific week, that set of games and what makes the most sense to you on that week. But I would start from that point. What makes the most sense to you in terms of who to play, as opposed to thinking about what you might be missing out on if you don't play a player. All right, we had uh, one more come in here, JM. Uh, this is from Not a Cat. Uh, JM, does anticipated pace of play factor into your initial thoughts when assessing game environment? Example, uh, I like Herbert and no Pats like to slow down the game. Uh, so didn't think of him in initial thoughts. Yes, uh, pace of play. And for me, it's not one of the first things I think about, but when I was writing up the all 16 NFL edge games, that was the first place I started my research. So I say that to say, not to say that it's a flawed thought process to think about that first, just to say that the way I've always kind of approached things is I think through the games, game level first. And then like, even now when I'm, when uh, Hilo and Mike and, and Pappy are writing up the, uh, 
main portions of the NFL Edge games, and then I'm writing up the interpretations. I still have all the tabs open that I used to use for researching the whole game, and I still kind of go through my research process the same way. So, like when I get to Wednesday, Thursday is when I'm going to look at pace and game environment and expected plays because your your scoring is going to come from plays, right? And so a team that's going to run 70 plays is likelier to put up a big score than a team that's going to run 60 plays. Um, but yeah, so I, for me, pace comes in and I think about that. I also want to think about why I'm rostering a player. So like the reason Herbert stands out to me is because he's got a huge arm and he can attack downfield. And if this game becomes competitive, there's going to be opportunities for the Chargers to cut it loose, right? And he can end up throwing for 350 yards and four touchdowns in a game where the Chargers only run 57 plays. It's just less likely. It's also less likely that Herbert has a huge game in a matchup against the Patriots compared to other game environments. So I'm already aware that Herbert is kind of like a fringe here's a guy who could score 40 points type of play in the way that I don't know some other players like who kind of don't really make the main core list of our, of our builds, but we identify them as, by the way, here's a guy who could go for a huge game. Like it's easy in retrospect to say like, well, of course, Jamar Chase could do that last week, but nobody was really on Jamar Chase. When I mentioned that game in the Sunday morning email was really the first time I'd seen that game being highlighted. Maybe, um, Rejo highlighted that game in the Oracle in the uh, last question. And he put something about, you know, uh, how did I miss that? You know, of course, Joe Burrow is the real deal. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, if we can find those spots, identify those spots to say the numbers, this is not the sharpest play, but here is a player who can go for 40 points. Here's a player who can break the slate. Nick Chubb's like that this week, right? Like Nick Chubb, is probably not going to get more than two or three targets still. And maybe he gets a couple extra carries and it's a tough matchup against Pittsburgh. But Nick Chubb could go for 35 to 40 points. So I want to identify spots like that, that the numbers don't point to it, but it's still worth keeping in mind. But yes, um, pace and pace matters primarily because total plays matter. The more plays you have, the more opportunities you have for big things to happen and the less you need to rely on efficiency and the more you can rely on volume. So uh, yes, pace matters. And I think it's a super sharp question, a super sharp way to look at things. Um, For me, I try to go through my initial thoughts with as little research as possible and go from my accumulated knowledge. So things about target counts and, and different things like that, all of that's just what I'm finding in the DraftKings app from like clicking on players' names. And then as I get to the kind of the middle of the week is when I start digging into the numbers and saying, okay, what might I have right? What might I have wrong? What might I be overlooking? What might I be overrating? Um, and and pace is one of those things that I'm going to look at in that um, from that lens. Because yeah, if you guys remember, like a lot of times my old NFL edge write-ups, they would start with this team ranks blank and pace of play this team ranks blank and a lot of times even going down to the level of saying which hilo often does of saying you know this team should run roughly this number of plays because those things are definitely important as well all right does anybody have any questions you want to raise your hand otherwise we are out of questions james we can give it a minute or so here I threw you off with the uh, you you jumped down you jumped off stage and then had your mic on mute you had a uh, had a scurry on up here. 
<laughs> I was trying to send you a signal that we had no uh, no questions. I was hoping you're going to catch keep, that signal. Keep you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, yeah, guys, we're going to get out of here. Um, I am flying across the country to New England to see my folks, uh, which means I will have a long travel day tomorrow and a crazy day on Thursday, like a 14, 15, 16 hour work day on Thursday to pack in everything, but um, it'll be worth it. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday with the fam, next Monday with the fam. And um, yeah, I'll actually still be there next Tuesday, but I will be working. So I'll see you guys from New England next week. As always, thanks so much for hanging out. Uh, really appreciate your time. I love doing this. I love hanging out with you guys and talking DFS and getting into some of the nitty gritty here that helps us become better players over time. So with that, I will see you on the site throughout the week. I will see you back here next week, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.